last week, Monty uh, did a really, really good job of walking us through Luke chapter 11, 1 through 4, the Lord's Prayer. And we saw that Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Jesus, teach us to pray. We've seen you pray. We've seen John uh, the Baptist disciples pray. Would you teach us to pray? And Jesus said to them in those first few verses of chapter 11, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So what folks have called that prayer is a model prayer. Monty mentioned that last week. It's an example prayer that teaches us really three big things about God, about God's glory, about God's authority, and God's care. But here's what's pretty sweet is Jesus didn't stop there on his teaching on prayer. In our text this morning, he uses that model prayer, if you would, as a springboard to expand his teaching on prayer to not, not uh, to be a model prayer to what motivates one to pray. Luke 1 through 4, in a sense, is the frame, and verses 5 through 13 this morning is the picture in that frame. Our text this morning puts real live flesh, heartfelt flesh on the skeleton or structure of prayer that Monty talked about last week in the Lord's Prayer. Luke 1 through 4, the Lord's Prayer gives us in some ways the biblical parameters of what is ultimately important in prayer. And verses 5 through 13 give us the, the want to to pray. Dr. Daryl Bach, the expert on Luke that we've quoted many times through this book, puts it this way. He says, Jesus' model prayer does not address the attitude that one is to have in approaching prayer. And he uses this example of, of how sometimes our attitude can get twisted. He says, since God is so holy, perhaps one should keep requests to a minimum and be careful about bothering the sovereign, holy God. So here's what Jesus does. To make sure that's not our attitude in prayer, that's not our perspective of God as we come to him, Jesus immediately turns from what one should pray to what should motivate one to pray. And here's why I think Jesus knows there's a complete difference in his followers or teaching his followers how to pray and actually becoming prayers. He knows and we know that knowing how to pray does not necessarily make us prayers. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. So he gives them this model prayer and then teaches them about who God is in some ways in full color. Because the most important thing they need is a clear picture of God. They will not and we will not become prayers unless we have a clear picture of who God is and what he is like. Yes, we've talked about many times here that prayer is a spiritual discipline. And that's true. But Jesus this morning is saying there's so much more. Jesus wants to get to the heart of what will provide fuel for our prayers. 
Now, it reminded me of a saying that my old college football coach had. His name was Ed Embry, and Ed Embry had a little bit of a speech impediment. He's still famous today. If I call one of my ex-teammates, and I, or they call me, and I say hello, and he says, hey, this is Brian Saunders, the first thing I'll say is, uh, hey, Brian, how are you? We talk like Ed Emery 30-plus years later because it was so unique. Ed used to say this all the time. Ability is what you're capable of doing. Motivation, men, determines what you do. I got to motivate you. So, thank you. <laughs> he probably got it from Jesus. But really, that's what Jesus is telling us this morning. Motivation determines what you do. He really does want to motivate us to become prayers, not just know about prayer. So let's read Luke 11, starting with verse 5. And he, Jesus, said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, and we'll unpack that, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So a fairly familiar text, let's unpack it. And let's start with the bold and shameless friend in verses 5 through 8. So here's what Jesus does. He asks his followers, his disciples, to envision a scenario where it's midnight and everyone in the neighborhood is asleep. Obviously, during that time, there was no electricity. And so just a little bit after dark, people would go to bed. How many of you are morning owls, morning people? Yeah. Wouldn't you like that now? Yeah. I'm a night owl. It would kill me, right? But they had to do that. There was no TV. And it says everyone has been asleep for a while. So the man starts knocking on the door of his friend. So you have two Jewish men here. Yo, Adam, it's your friend Levi. I need to borrow three loaves of bread because I have an unexpected late night guest who's been traveling. He just arrived and he's hungry. I'm out, I'm out of bread. I notice there's no emergency. No one's bleeding. Typically, when things happen at midnight, something's really bad wrong, right? My mama, as crazy as she was, used to say, nothing good happens after midnight. <laughs> Levi's unexpected guest is hungry. If I'm Adam, 
Here's what I'm telling him. If, for example, Monty comes to my door. Jeff, I'm out of bread. Got a friend, came in town from Oklahoma. He's hungry. I said, Monty, tell him to go to sleep. He won't be hungry no more. <laughs> but Levi is driven by the high view of hospitality in their culture. Levi has two choices. He can be a poor host or he can be a poor neighbor. And his culture dictated or drove him to be a poor neighbor and a hospitable host. Verse 7 sort of gives us a peek of what's going on inside the house as Levi is knocking on Adam's door. Adam says, don't bother me, bro. I'm asleep. My wife is asleep. My kids are asleep. And at that time, they all slept in the same room, usually on a mat together. My door has been shut. Typically, there would be a metal bar or rings to lock the door. And if I get up, all that noise it's going to make, all that racket's going to make, you're going to wake me up, you're going to wake my kids up, you're going to wake my wife up. And if the wife ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, bro. She's already a terrible sleeper. I ain't getting up. Levi's response, Adam, I need some bread. I ain't getting up. Adam, I need some bread. He kept knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. Verse 8 tells us Adam got up. But he didn't get up because of his deep friendship with Levi, because that friendship is strained right now. He gets up and gives Levi the bread because of his impudence. Now, when I first read that this week, I went, you know, I don't think I've ever used the word impudence in the sentence, and I don't know what it means. So I looked it up in the English, and I looked it up in the Greek. In the Greek, it's translated shameless boldness. He got up. Levi got up because, or Adam got up because Levi was shameless and bold in his asking and persisting. Levi shamelessly persisted and received what he asked for. Here's a couple takeaways, I think, for us this morning. The first is that great need drives bold and shameless prayer. The host Levi had a need to provide for his friend and he did not have the resources to meet that need. So it is with us. So here's what happens in awareness of our great needs and our own lack of resources to meet those needs is what will drive you and I to have shameless and boldless prayer. When we do not pray that his kingdom comes, we do reveal in ourselves a love for the world. When we do not pray for God to provide our daily bread, we reveal a self-sufficient attitude or our laying up of earthly treasures is something that makes prayer for daily needs unnecessary. When we do not confess our sins to experience 
the forgiveness we already have in Christ and for the grace to forgive others, we reveal in ourselves an unawareness or a callousness of our own sin. So the fact is, we are empty of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual resources to live out a kingdom life, a gospel-centered life, a Christ-centered life, unless God graciously provides for them. Let me give us a picture of how the Apostle Paul was aware of his need. Romans 7. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You think Paul's aware? Therefore, what we saw as a result of Paul being aware of his great need was him being a man of unceasing prayer. <laughs> Google that. Google Paul's prayers. You'll find amazing, amazing stuff. God is inviting his followers to come shamelessly and boldly to his throne of grace so that he may meet you and I in our time in need. Hebrews 4, 16. Speaking of shame, let's go back to the Garden of Eden a minute. The shame Adam and Eve felt after they sinned we know, affected their intimacy with God as they tried to hide from God instead of coming to him in confession and repentance through prayer. Shame also affects us in our intimacy with God. It gives us this sense in the, that we're not good enough, which we aren't. It gives us this sense that why would God want to hear from me? I'm not necessary. I have not been walking with God closely as of late. I know he don't want to hear from me now. I'm not doing well. I know I'm sinning, and I'm sinning in places that are repetitive, and I'm in a, I'm in a spiral of sin. I have no right to come before God. God is too busy I mean, you can go on and on and on how shame sort of speaks to our minds and hearts. Therefore, we don't pray. In actuality, the very thing that will restore your intimacy with God is the very thing you are reluctant to do because of shame, which is to go shamelessly and boldly before the throne of the living God in prayer. And pour your heart out to him. He already knows to open your chest and be vulnerable with him. With every sin, every need, every hurt, every worry, every pressure. And then Peter writes what the result will be. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you, after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. 
So the bold and sh- or the great need drives bold and shameless prayer. Secondly, intimacy with God at noon dictates us being comfortable enough to bang on his door at midnight. Our knowledge of God and our walks with God day in and day out give us this foundation of confidence to who God is in contrast to who we are. So that when our midnight hour of increased need comes, and, and let me just give you a prophetic true word here, it will come. Those midnight moments, those dark moments, those hard moments, they're coming. And when they come, because of this consistent walk with God at noon in the daylight, we'll know where to go and how to go to him. It's a great picture of that from the prophet Nehemiah, a godly man. One of Israel's prophets, there's a whole book with his name on it. We come to this place in Nehemiah 1 where Israel is in captivity. Jerusalem is in ruins. God had allowed the Babylonians to bring judgment on Israel. The wall is broken down. And look how this godly prophet knew exactly what to do in his midnight hour of need. In the midnight hour of need for Israel. Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, that's the midnight, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. He is reminding God of his promises. With those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive. Listen to me, Nehemiah says, and your eyes open. See me, Nehemiah says, to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Nehemiah came to God shameless, with great boldness, And he laid out for God his heart for his people. I love that. Next, as we continue, bold and shameless prayer comes with great promises. Verses 9 and 10. So Jesus sort of continues with this theme of shameless and bold prayers as he makes application to his parable in verses 5 through 8. So he tells a parable, and then he says, I want to I make some application here. And the application are the promises that come with that. He is saying, when you understand how I want you to come to me, shameless and bold, this is a picture. Verses 9 and 10 is a picture It is the point of what I just told you, what it looks like to come to me shameless and bold. And then what he does, he unpacks three imperative verbs to paint this picture for his disciples of what shameless and bold looks like. He says, ask, or because it's an imperative verb, keep on asking. Seek. Or keep on seeking. Knock or keep on knocking. Dr. Daryl Box says this. 
In asking, there's an invitation to pray. In seeking, there's an invitation to pursue God and his will. And in knocking, there's the picture of coming into God's presence. And we notice in verses 9 and 10, with each action of ask and seek and knock, there's this corresponding response. Ask, and when the disciple asks, he'll be given to. Seek, and when the disciple seeks, he will find. And knock, when the disciple knocks, the door that was once closed will be open. When I look at that, I see this yin and yang going on there. God supplies as the disciples ask, seek, and knock, and the disciple discovers what God is supplying as they ask, seek, and knock. Here Jesus makes it clear that God is not like the Adam in our story, the friend who was in bed and was hesitant to respond, and you have to keep irritating him to get an answer. There's a contrast here between God and the man who wouldn't get up. God will hear our prayers. He will answer our prayers, 9 and 10 say. He might not answer them in our timetable. He might not answer them according to our desires. But he will answer every prayer. Yes, no, or not now. And his answer, we'll see in the third part, will be always for our good and for his glory. And the older I get, one of the truths that comes to me more often as I look back over my 30, 37, 38 years of being a Christian, yeah, is that some of my prayers were very dumb, and I'm so glad God said no. Many of our prosperity gospel preachers have an error used verses 9 and 10 to make a case for, to make a case for that this is a blank check. You get what you want when you want it. The name it, claim it. They quote this verse, that's all they give you. If you quote this verse, if you're asked, seek and not, you'll get whatever your heart desires. It's an error, it's heresy because they take it out of context. Luke 1 through 4 always, all, Luke 1 through 4 gives us the parameters for what prayer is. Nothing could be farther from the truth when the prosperity preacher uses this verse that way. Three reasons. The exhortation to ask, seek, and knock, and the following promises to receive, find, and open has been qualified, as I said, by Luke 1 through 4. According to God's kingdom plans, according to God's will, according to God's daily provision, God's forgiveness, and God's protection from temptation. Those are the parameters there to have us ask, seek, and knock. Secondly, Jesus' half-brother in James qualifies, speaks to how we pray. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James qualifies. You want a million dollars? Lord, I want a million dollars. I'm trusting God for a million dollars. I'm asking, I'm seeking and knocking. James says, that's on you. Here's the deal. The last thing you and I need, most of us, is a million dollars. Because we turn into complete goofballs. You ever read those stories about the people who win the lottery and what their lives look like within a few years later? Most of us don't have enough sense to have a million dollars given to us. Now, I'd like to try it one time (laughs) just to see. Thirdly, and this is beautiful, when you shameless and boldly ask, seek, and knock in prayer to the all-powerful God of the universe, you experience more than money or things buy or satisfy. You experience this deep and beautiful communion and connection with God. Listen to Paul pray in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives this name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, to know this love that surpasses anything materially, that you may be filled with the measure of all, the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask, imagine, or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. When we pray shameless and boldly before the throne of grace to ask and to seek and to knock, That's what we experience inside of us. There's no material thing that can satisfy like that. Martin Lord Jones, concerning these two verses, put it this way. He says, to ask, seek, and knock with a holy boldness is like having an argument with God and putting your case before God based on the promises from his word. This is the whole secret of prayer. Now, before you do that, before I finish this, you got to know what his word means, okay? But when you do, he says, this is the whole secret of prayer. So when you pray, go to God and say what is on your heart and claim his promise and demand he obey his promise. Sue him for it, Lord Jones says. Pester him with his own promise because quoting his words back to him pleases him. I hope that quote right there removes some of these these walls that I sometimes come up with and you come up with to approach God shameless and boldly in prayer.
And then lastly, bold and shameless prayers linked to your knowledge of God as a good and perfect father, verses 11 through 13. So Jesus continues to motivate his followers to pray, to continue to reveal to us, to his disciples, what God is like. And so here he uses an illustration about fathers and he asks and answers the question, how is God like a father? And I know, as Monty said last week, that many of us, like myself, have a father that does not have the characteristics of God. And so there were, there were, there were misconceptions about God, my father, in my own mind and heart for years. I always felt like he's going to get me. And that kind of thought, that kind of lie that I believed, I think really hurt me becoming a prayer. But Jesus uses that here. He says, look at God, the Father's heart of compassion and goodness and provision in the questions of 11 and 12, verse 11 and 12. Read those with me again. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Jesus is not taking a survey here. These are rhetorical questions. No one is supposed to raise their hands. Jesus is making the point that earthly fathers, generally speaking, want good for their children and want to care for their children, provide for their children, and protect for their children. No one would disagree with that. He's saying that fathers are at a whole nother level compared to that neighbor friend who only likes to be your friend during the daytime. If a friend will respond, Jesus is saying, from someone shameless and bold asking, even in the middle of the night, then what would a father do? Because we all know that our children do not hesitate to ask, amen? They come, and they come hard, and they come shameless. They come bold, and they say, I want, and I need. I'm broke because of that. I gave in. The promises of ask, seek, and knock are based on the truth of who you are praying to, your heavenly Father. Verse 11, first question, if your son asks for a fish, would you as a father ever give him a rattlesnake instead? I know a lot of good fathers, and I know a lot of guys who really struggle. I don't know a one that would do that. Your son wants food from, he wants food, but you give him an animal that would kill him versus an animal that would nourish him. No earthly father in his right mind would do that. Verse 12, second question. If your son asked for an egg, would you as a father give him a scorpion? No, I may scare him with a scorpion. I might have done that. You can ask me later. Or with a, uh, not a scorpion, but a, uh, what's the big spider? Wolf tarantula. I dropped a few fake ones on them while they're sleeping. When children come to an earthly father with legitimate needs, this is true for me, when my children would come to me with legitimate needs and reasonable wants, 
There was something instinctive in me, especially when they didn't have an attitude of entitlement. I wanted to provide for them. This illustration is so effective because it's so ludicrous. It's so outrageous. God as our Father does not give us those things which would be harmful to us when we have asked for those things which are good for us. Now verse 13 is sort of the climax of this illustration. It's a how much more argument. It's a, it's a familiar Jewish way of making a point, the how much more argument. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He speaks there of how humans are evil, knowing that even those of us who know Christ, sin is still present. He speaks, though, of what's true generally, that even though we love our kids, we try to do right by our kids, we try to give our kids good gifts there's not a dad in here. There's not a mom in here who has not hurt their kid, who has not sinned against their kid in some way, form, or fashion. So he uses that phrase there. And yet men have enough of the image of God in them to not to want to hurt our children and desire to do good for them. So he says, if you being imperfect give good gifts to your children, then imagine how a perfect heavenly father will give you good gifts. If you who are limited in wisdom give good gifts, imagine what a father who, is, who has perfect wisdom, imagine what they will do. So when we go to God the Father in bold and shameless prayer and we upload our hearts to him, he is delighted. That's what Jesus is saying here. He is delighted to provide all the love, power, wisdom, and provision that we need in our time of need. God the Father is the opposite, Jesus is saying, of a monarch or a dictator. Because they're distant. You have to be careful how you approach them. Back in the day, for a monarch, if you just walked in the room where he was, you would automatically be killed. Sometimes you had to walk with your back to them as you approached them. Jesus is saying just the opposite. He's saying come boldly and without shame and ask and seek and knock and pour your heart out to me. And then he says he'll give what is the ultimate good. Look at the end of verse 13. The perfect good. The most powerful good. He says I'll give you myself. In the third person of the Trinity, I will come live inside of you as he does in every believer. You ask for help, he gives the what? Helper. You ask for truth, he gives the spirit of truth. You ask for guidance, he gives you the actual guide. You ask for the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. He gives you the source of the fruit of the spirit. Are you talking about a generous father? He gives us just not the supply, but the source itself. And so I believe here that Jesus is elevating our gaze to say, our father in heaven is not limited 
like our earthly fathers. Earthly dads are not playing in the same league as our heavenly father. Now this morning, I don't know what prevents you from knowing about prayer and becoming a prayer. But I'm guessing it's the same things that prevent me. I'm guessing it's the same things that this text addresses. A great awareness of our need. A wrong view, a wrong picture of who God is and how he wants us to come to him. Go read the Psalms. The psalmists write the Psalms and they demand that God listen. Listen to me. Where are you? They accuse him of not being there. And as they work through their prayers, they come to this connection and communion with God and their souls are satisfied. What a great opportunity we have as a church to become a church that is full of people reading the Bible and a bunch of prayers. So take a minute this morning and ask the question, so what?